Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A couple of quick things before we kick off. We are live on Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club for Podcast for Palestine with an incredible lineup of special guests, some very special guests, live music and plenty of entertainment. All proceeds are going to Gaza, so Get your tickets now on eventbrite.ie. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It'll be a great night for a great cause. And I hope to see lots and lots and lots of you there. And I also need to remind you that the Tortoise Shack is completely reliant on you. We've no ads, we've no sponsors. The only way we keep the show on the road and can continue to have the type of conversations that you're about to listen to right now is if some of you chip in, pay it forward, and keep it free for everyone. And the easiest way to do that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So if you can go without the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, give it to us. Help us keep the show on the road in 2024. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing. Please come on board and I hope to see lots of you next Sunday evening. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Happy New Year, folks. Uh, Although we never really took a minute off over the Christmas. Well, I never took a minute off over the Christmas. The other fella, um, it's actually, Martin, first Christmas where you haven't ended up in hospital in four years, but you look, you're you're tipping into it now, looking at that face. I'm still, I I, I see this, I can't see this, but this is the smallest violin in the world I'm playing for Tony working over Christmas. It's it's absolutely tiny. Yeah, well, look, if if we've we've had nothing but uh, rave reviews, Views for the work I've done, Martin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> work I've done. Um, listen, folks. Oh, just I should plug the end of January, 28th of January. We will be back in the Sugar Club as part of Podcast for Palestine. Uh, tickets are still available on eventbrite.ie and all proceeds are going to Gaza. So it's a good cause and it'll be a great night's entertainment. Grab them and come along. We'd love to see lots of you there. Promise you it won't all be downbeat. There's, 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 there'll, be, there'll be some good light entertainment as well as some serious topics discussed on the night speaking of serious topics martin you cast your mind back to to a whole generation ago it seems like a, a total lifetime ago now even if it was in even if it was only 18 months ago really um we are rejoined on the podcast for the first time in, in a while by professor anthony stains who at the time, if people will recall, was a member of the Independent Science Advisory Group, uh, ISAG, as, we, as they were commonly known, and was advocating for uh, better policies around public health and how public health be managed during the COVID pandemic. Anthony, how are you doing? It's good to see you. I'm very well, thank you. Nice to see, nice to see both of you. Yeah, um, we've, we've seen so much in the last while of what we call revisionist history. Uh, there's always this. There's always this, this this thing where we want to go and rewrite what actually happened, and in the last 24 hours, the headlines and I stress headlines because if you read the the articles, they're they're a little more nuanced and there's a bit more context offered. But the headlines have been jumped on by on the basis that Ireland had no excess deaths during the COVID pandemic. Um, you were someone who would have advocated for you know the restrictions that we needed for str- for stronger. Uh, public health and how we would resource into the future. What did you make of that report when you saw it come out uh, in the last 24 hours? I was a bit surprised by the timing because the work it's based on was published last November. But for whatever reason, the Department of Health brought it out uh, yesterday. And what it says is that if, if you take the department's spin on the press release that COVID was actually good, the healthy Irish population, and fewer people died than you would have expected when COVID occurred. Now, 
I think most people's reaction to that has been, what? You know, because we, we all know people who died. We all know people who were seriously ill in hospital. It's really hard to believe that um, COVID was good for the health of the population. And that's not what the report says. It's not what the OECD people say either. So they, what they've done is they've dug deeply into one question. What's a good way to look at how COVID affected countries all across Europe? And they've studied deaths by age and year from 2015 to 2022 across as much of the OECD as they could get. So this is basically richer countries around the world. What they find is that in most countries, there were substantial rises in the number of actual deaths. So the number of deaths went up. When they come, they then asked the question, what happens if you compare 2015 to 2019 with 2020 to 2022? And pretty much everywhere, the number of deaths goes up. They then do something which I think is both interesting and important. They say, right, well, actually, we know the population's changed over that time. And we know in some countries, populations got older or got younger on average. So older populations have more deaths, as, as you'd expect, just more, you know, more old people. Old people die more than young people. So if you're more old people, you're going to have more dead people. And that's the second piece of work they did. And that's the graph the department showed in their press release. And it shows that the number of excess deaths fell during the COVID pandemic in quite a few countries, including this one. And the third piece of work is to look by year. So they're not looking 2015 to 2019. They're doing 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 21, and 22. And they ask themselves, what was the experience of death in each of those countries in each of those years? And that's where you get something interesting. Because across most European countries, death rates have been falling since my childhood, since the 1960s. And they've continued to fall pretty, pretty steadily. They get interrupted from time to time by recessions. But on average, death rates fall year on year on year. What happened in Ireland and many other countries, Ireland is not in any way unique, was the death rates stopped falling in 2020 and went up a bit. Here they went down a little bit in 2021, and they went up further in 2022. And that's a pattern you see in quite a few countries. And that diff, that gap between what death rates were doing, which was steadily going down, and what they actually did, which was level out and go up, that's the impact of COVID. Now, it gets complicated for Ireland, because death registration in Ireland is a bit of a mess. And we get a lot of deaths are come into the system quite late because of the way in which death registrations go through the coroner system, essentially. 
So we know the death figures for the last part of 2022 are not complete. And we're not going to know how what those figures are probably for six or eight months from now. We won't we won't have a good idea till then. But the CSO have done a lot of work using RIP.ie and they found it's pretty reliable. So they've the CSO look at RIP.ie. The OECD didn't. They looked at CSO figures. So we know the CSO figures are a bit low for 2022. So we expect the death rate for 2022 is going to be higher than is reported in this paper. But we don't know how much higher. We still that that's not known. We're not going to know for some time. And a lot of deaths that are most delayed are deaths in younger people because they're the ones that go through the coronary system. If an older person dies from, you know, a disease that they're expected to die of, they don't go through the coronary system. But if a younger person turns up dead unexpectedly, they are going to go through the system and that's going to delay registration. And most of the European countries don't do this. They register deaths much faster than we do. But having said that, you know, the, the picture is clear. We, If you look, whatever way you look, whatever set of figures you look at, Ireland did better than the European average, which is great. And we did better for three reasons. One is there's a very high level of trust by the Irish people in their government. So largely, people went along with what the government asked them to do. People took up vaccination with great enthusiasm. So we had very high vaccination rates. And they we got vaccinated very quickly. And vaccination reduces deaths. It doesn't stop you getting infected. But it reduces deaths a lot. And it reduces serious illness a lot. And we bought into that. And that was good. You know, that's why we did well. And we had clear communication about COVID-19 from the get-go, from Leo Varadkar standing up in the United States saying, we have a problem. And you can, you know, you can look back on it. You can say, well, there are some things we should have done differently. There are some things we should maybe have done sooner. We made mistakes. But we also got lots of things right. So one of the reasons we need an inquiry into COVID is so that the next time this happens, we won't make the same mistakes. We learn from what we did. We learn from what we did that worked well, and we learn from what we did that didn't work well. But the, the, the OECD report is giving us the same message as the other analyses we've done, which is Ireland did better than the European average, better than the rich country average, but not as well as a number of other countries. We what could have done better. That's what I was going to come to, Anthony. We could have done better. And we could have done better. And that's what the inquiry is meant to be about. It's not meant to be about, I suppose, uh, going forensically through the past, even though an element of that is certainly needed to look through the data so that we can learn from it. But the inquiry is about being better prepared for any future pandemic. Now, we've seen the inquiry in the UK, and it hasn't gone the way government expected it to go. And a lot of 
for what we can say is really nasty stuff coming out. And there seems to be a fear with the Irish government that any kind of in-depth investigation into how COVID was handled will turn up things that they don't want people to know. So therefore, they're coming out very strong with positions. We don't actually need that kind of inquiry. And they're actually fighting that kind of inquiry. We do need that kind of inquiry. We do need to know what happened and we do need to be able to plan for the future. And this article, as you, as you, as both yourself and Tony have pointed out, what's in the headline is not matched by what's in the body of the article. And what's in the body of the article <coughs> is extremely selective to be able to say, do we really need an inquiry? And that's what this is all about. I don't know what it's all about. I, I don't have insight into the mind of the Department of Health. But we do need an inquiry. And the situation in Ireland is a bit different to the situation in the UK. The UK made an absolute mess of everything that they did with COVID, nearly. And they, that needs to be understood. The situation was quite different. We didn't get everything right. But we got a lot of things right. So we're coming at this from a more positive place. And we could spend the whole inquiry, you know, going into which junior minister in the Department of Health knew what, when. And that kind of misses the point. The, the point is we weren't no more, I think, than at most of the European countries. We weren't ready for a pandemic. Um, and that's, that is clear. We pulled together something to manage the pandemic, and it, it worked not too badly. You know, it could, it could have worked better, but it worked not too badly. But we can't do that again. But, but Anthony, you have you to have this property set up. You only have to look at it now and say, here's the problem. The mm. people emerged from the pandemic, and now you read that headline and there are elements that are on the rise in, in across the globe, politically mobilized. And, you know, we saw the anti-vax movement. We've seen the the creeping. Everything is, this is authoritarianism. You were, we were talking about, you know, vaccine passports. You were uh, 15 minute city means you won't be able to leave your house for 15 minutes. All of this conspiracy culture mm-hmm. that, that, that has, that has risen. And then you read headlines like that and you understand that unfortunately it, it is giving sucker to this idea that, that, you know, so you said, the Irish people reacted very well the last time. We all got it. We were in this together for the most part. Very few I- idiots running around, you know, trying to break their um, break the curfews and all the rest of it. But now it's been mobilized to a point where I, I'd be afraid that, as you said, the next time something like this rolls around, um, there could be so much more skepticism because of headlines like this and how now that can be that can be spun into misinformation and disinformation and i think it's 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 kind of the onus should be on on how it's how it's covered and how it's reported to actually make sure mm. uh, it's not disseminated in that way but it is the last 24 hours i've just seen telegram channels say, talking about how you know what's the and this the dumbest phrase of all time i'm not far right i'm just right so far um this mm. and this is the this is the crap they're coming out with so you know does that not concern you as someone who's an advocate of improving public health and and having a plan in place for the next time this happens because it will happen again it does concern me, and that's why open communication is so important. 
of why the way the department have drafted this press release is just wrong. Because the implication that most people would take out of it is that nobody died from COVID. Now, that's obviously, I think, not true. And the department know that. I mean, the Department of Health is, is not in any way stupid. But I don't think they thought hard enough about this. I think they thought of this as a good news story they could get out for the new year. And, you know, it's it's a confirmation of what is actually a good news story. We could have had a lot more dead people. We could have had a lot more cases than we did. But the way it's presented matters hugely. And the way to present it is something like, a lot of people, yes, a lot of people died from COVID. A lot of people got very seriously ill from COVID. But actually, we hung together as a community. And between what we did and the availability of vaccines, we brought it under control more effectively than many other wealthy countries. And that's a that's a positive. So I, that's true as well. And it's a positive fact, way to present it. The, the message is the opposite to the way it's been presented by the always right people. Mm-hmm. It is that because society was cohesive and worked together and mm-hmm. largely obeyed the rules that were set down. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know whether the rules were right or wrong at no. the time, Anthony, where everybody was just saying this is seems to be the best course of action. In doing so, we prevented a lot of excess deaths in doing so. So the story is actually the opposite. It's the cohesion of society which prevented so much excess deaths. But there were excess deaths in certain settings, particularly residential care settings. And we had very high numbers of deaths in residential care settings. And I know because we've spoke to them here on the podcast that there is uh, certainly uh, an impetus from whistleblowers say, hey, look, you really, really need to look at residential care settings mm-hmm. and what happened in them for the future, yeah. for the future. And this is where they're coming from. And yet it seems to be they're trying to brush over this quite quickly. Yeah, and I, I, I understand what happened. I work with St. Michael's House, which is a big service for people with intellectual disabilities. Now, we have very few large residential settings. So most of our service users are in small houses with maybe you know, four or five people tops. But we were very worried about the risks of COVID because for a variety of reasons, people with intellectual disability are at greater risk of infection than you know, the general public, if you, if you like. And we did a lot of work. Our staff worked hugely prevent infection, to reduce transmission. And, you know, it it wasn't perfect, but it went pretty well. And I have to put my hand on my heart, and I blame myself for this as well. I never thought about nursing homes because I was concentrating on the group I worked with. And I'd never said to myself, what about the nursing homes? And I'm not sure that anyone else did either. And that was a serious mistake, because you're, you're right, there were a significant number of tragic deaths in but, nursing homes. But we need to look at, we talked about nursing homes, and we can be completely, if we want to be honest about it, it's because the majority of it is, is, is provided through some f- form of private care as well, Anthony. It's not in the public system, uh, to, to, in, in large part. 
and we have that element of whereby where it's a for profit. Um, you know, I think it was um, someone referred to the, to a lot of the institutional these residential care uh, units as the the old remember Woodies during the the boom. There was always a Woodies on the outskirts of town built built up for everybody, and um, very much the same with some of this residential care. And we've and we did you know so so. I suppose two 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 quick points. One, a big flaw there is why is, is there's no real oversight into, you know, and 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 I don't think the Department of Health really want too much insight into the into how some of these pro- and they need to, we need to get real about how we regulate these and how we look at removing the the for profit model where where it's there. And then the second thing is. Yes, we did. Yes, we all complied. Yes, we all um, mostly complied. We mostly did our best, and we stood up for one another. But but the government didn't play ball either by improving the situation around ICU beds, around situations of providing of improving that, and that's and that's a concern to me still. I don't think that that's entirely fair. The, the number of ICU beds went up very sharply during COVID, and huge work was done in the hospitals. Huge work into maintaining the number of ICU beds and increasing but, the number of but, ICU but, uh, beds. But no, okay, I'm gonna, but when Finnegale came into power, they, 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 we had to go from 216 was up to 500. They hadn't gone up to nearly 260, I believe, in, over the course of that first 10 years. And then they started to go up there. And we were, ten, we were a decade behind when it came to those beds. Okay, I accept that they've done some yeah. work in the meantime, but we were a decade behind. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, we hadn't done the investment, but I can tell you from personal experience that when COVID hit, every hospital in the country said, where can we get more ICU beds? Where can we get more staff? Where can we get more equipment? And, you know, partly by the grace of God, we did not run out of ICU beds. We met, you know, we, we probably came close. But we managed to stay ahead just about. And that, that was because the people in the hospitals, the staff in the hospitals, worked their socks off to make it possible. And it wasn't ideal and it wasn't perfect, but it was done. And it should have been done earlier. Yes, of course it should have been done earlier, but it wasn't done earlier. And we, we have a challenge with, we have a challenge with public sector investment generally. You know the way we do it, the way we account for it, the way we fund it. All of all of this needs serious looking at, including the hospitals, because the investment in our hospitals is not, it's not, it's not where it should be or or near where it should be. But we've got wider issues in the health service as well. And Andy was being was interviewed this morning. I think she's the director of public health in Limerick, and she put her finger on it very nicely. She said that. You've got a choice. You can either keep people healthy in the community, which is relatively cheap, and which is what most people want, or you can provide lots more hospital beds when you don't keep them healthy and they turn up in hospital. And nobody wants, nobody, I think, wants to be in hospital. Nobody wants to be in hospital bed unless they have to be. And we know because, again, this work's been done over decades. We know we can reduce the the requirement for hospital beds by keeping people healthier in the population for longer. We know we need hospital beds. We probably need more hospital beds than we have. 
But the the difference between the, the ESRI work on hospital beds, the difference between the business as usual model and what we could do if we put a lot of effort into keeping people healthy is thousands of beds. And those beds cost ballpark figure one to 1.5 million each to build. That's a lot of money. I, I, I suppose it is a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, Anthony, but then again, compared to what's in the coffers of the government at the moment, it is a mere drop in the ocean of money they have available to them at the moment. And on deaths, you know, for want of a better phrase, we have an ambient number of preventable deaths every year because of overcrowding in hospitals. Yeah. And that number has risen since COVID. It is now a higher baseline than it was before we went into COVID. So the notion that we don't really need an inquiry or that there was no access deaths, excess deaths, in fact, we've come out of COVID with a higher ambient death rate in hospitals than we did before we went mm. into COVID. And all of that needs to be addressed in an yeah. inquiry. All of it. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with you for a moment, Martin. I think you're right. We do need an inquiry, but it needs to have it needs to have a purpose, which is preparing for the future so we yes. can learn from it and learn not just in terms of public health and pandemic preparedness, but learn in terms of how the whole health system works, how the health system hangs together. Because the health system isn't really hanging together at the moment. We, we still don't have universal access to primary care which makes us an extreme outlier in European terms. And we know this is an effective way of delivering care to people. We don't invest enough in primary care. I'm not denying we need investment in hospitals. But if, I was, if you asked me to prioritise investment right now, I'd say housing, education, particularly for poorer communities, and primary care, and hospitals would be fourth on that list. I, I, on, just on Martin, one, one quick thing for people to, to be aware of, because they, they, they might, that might strike you as strange that a public health professional is talking about in terms of housing first, but housing, uh, you know, security, um, having that having that roof over your head, having that, that security of tenure, having the place where it, it leads to all sorts of better outcomes for health. Yeah. So you know, it really is genuinely good health policy. Is is uh, a good housing policy? Is good health policy? And I want to go back and if I can, Martin, just indulge me for a second. I made a joke about the fifteen minute city. The idea, because it's become a conspiracy thing, that you know, oh, they they won't let you leave your house. What it actually means is it's good housing planning, whereby you should be able to access your school as if you're a kid within fifteen minutes walking or on a bike. You know, you mm-hmm. should be able to get to your uh, your place of work within a reasonable commute. You should be able to have access to services like primary care, like that within that. It's not it's not this um, authoritarian thing that's being peddled, but very much, Anthony. That's why I want. I think it's stressed that. You know, it starts. It starts with the cave, as Martin often says on this podcast. Yes, it, it, it's uh, and and on primary health care, we have a lot of obstacles to good primary health care. We get GPs who are excellent at what they do, who build up these multidiscipline clinics, and and we all know them. You know, in in most major towns, GPs have done this, where you can go in and you can have a lot of minor stuff done that you don't need to go near a hospital. 
And yet we put a bar on those GPs replicating those services elsewhere, which is utter, utter madness. It's utter, utter madness. We should be saying, you've done a great job here. Put a manager in. Now go to Cork and do the same, and we'll provide you with the money to do so. And that's what should be happening. And that's how you build primary care. And it's how you build it within a capitalist society even more. God, look at me talking about capitalism. But it's how you do it. And it is how you do it. And we have this stupid bar on it that you must be uh, provide personal service as the GP to the clinic that you are the manager of. Instead of saying, well, actually, you're a clinic manager. You know, you've moved up from being a hands-on GP to being something else. And please go replicate the success you've had somewhere else. We'll pay you to do it. And that's how you manage primary health care. But the government, it's a cartel. It's just a cartel. They won't allow it to happen. Yeah, no, we, we have lots of other ways of doing primary care the way we do at the moment. And what's happening in quite a few countries now is they've gone from a model where every GP is a small business. And they're finding... If you want to be a small business, why would you become a GP? If you want to be a small business, why would you go to medical school? You're much better off, you know, going off to Ernst and Young and training as a whatever, and coming out of that and making money that way. And that that's what's happened in Britain. They can't get people to be what they call GP principals, and increasingly, it's happening here. And we're already seeing rural areas in Ireland where, you know, the fifteen-minute GP is is history. The it's it's an hour to the GP, mm. um, and that's not right. That's not fair to people. And we're, we're we 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 keep trying to, to you know develop rural Ireland, but you actually have to. The state has to put services in. You have to make rural Ireland livable. You have to make primary care viable in a range of different places. So you end up with different models of primary care in different places because you're going to do something quite different in the middle of swords than what you're going to do in the middle of Leitrim Village. Yeah. But you're, you still got to have the basic service there and make it happen. And it can be done. Other countries have done it. French have done it reasonably well. You know, the, the Dutch have done it. The Danes have done it. Why can't why can't the Irish do it? We speak the wrong language, Anthony. <laughs> so, so let's let's just bring it right back to the start. The the myth of the you know there was no excess deaths. It's not true. That's that's that. Yeah. that we know that's not true. But let's let's say if you were now sending the lads off for the COVID inquiry, you might be giving them a little, maybe not a gold star, but a silver star and telling them no homework for, for two nights because they didn't do too badly at the end of it. Is that fair? Yeah. I think that that's absolutely fair. Yeah. And learn from it so that the next time this happens, we're not running, we're not scrambling to pull together a response. And to be fair to the department, they've actually set up a group, which I think Mary Horgan is leading, to do exactly that. You know, to get ready to 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 do the preparedness work for the next for the next pandemic or the next microbiological disaster to hit us, because we're, there's likely to be more. I mean, one of the really scary things about global warming is that the prediction is the number of these new viruses will go up and up, 
And most of the new viruses will just fizzle out. But you only need one or two to go global. And we've seen it with, with COVID. Um, there, the cost of that is is incalculable. There's a paper out this week from a bunch of American economists, and they're asking themselves, based on US data, what's the cost of long COVID? And it is trillions. Now, it's, it is, this is all US figures, US costs. Mm. And I'm not an economist, so I can't really judge the quality or otherwise of their work. But people who seem to know what they're talking about seem to be impressed by it. And that's the kind of thing you're talking about. You're, you're talking well, about I, global I, costs of billions and trillions. I don't know why you wouldn't venture an opinion on economists. Economists will venture an oh, opinion they, on they, you. They, and, they, spent, and, you know. they, they, they spent the entire lockdown uh, commenting on anything you you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know yeah, now is the time. You know, certainly stick it in there, twist it round. No, no. won't mind I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you went into any any of these uh, any any economist office, there was a, a, a dartboard with your face on it. But like. I mean, that's only speculation. I can't, I can't. Anthony, we hope you had a great Christmas and it is absolutely lovely to talk to you again. And look, and it's great to have somebody who's just sensible and just says, look, there were excess deaths, you know. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. it was a pandemic. People died, you know. Let's, yeah. let's not pretend. Unfortunately, yeah, they did. Let's not pretend otherwise and let's not pretend otherwise so thank you very much for coming on this thank you. this conversation as i said it's always a pleasure to talk to you anthony always and i hope you had a great christmas and a, a, a christmas. happy new year to you and i hope everything goes well this year for you and happy new year to you and yours thanks folks we'll be back in your feeds shortly waiting to to connect with uh Eunice, uh, to, speaking of health issues, um, uh, a former guest, a regular contributor, uh, while well, we had connectivity in Gaza, Eunice El Halak uh, was a recipient of um, uh, of a kidney transplant only a short while ago. And now, because he can't get the correct medications, he's facing potential renal failure. And uh, if we can get him back on, we'll be talking. But we will also then be calling on you to raise hell to try and help because, you know, he needs he needs critical care. He can't he can't survive for much longer. He's only a young man of 26. It's another hard case. And unfortunately, once we establish the link there, I'll bring you that story soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Podcast.